Welcome to another episode of The Beanholes. I'm Eric Cormier. Uh, this episode's coming up a little bit late, but we just felt uh, out of respect for Gene Wilder to not try to put it so so closely to his his passing and and it literally we had another episode planned and and when gene wilder had passed last week it just you know we we came together and said yeah you know it'd be it'd be silly not to talk about him uh the man is a legend and it's crazy to 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 look at his career and go like he really hasn't been in that much stuff but the stuff he was in had such an impact on people and, and in the world of comedy. Um, you got movies like Blazing Saddles and and, and Young Frankenstein uh, and, and earlier movies like The Producers, which helped, set, you know, set that, pre- you know, that story. You know, it went from a movie to a, a big musical on Broadway and then became a musical movie. And uh, and then, of course, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory uh, as a as a starring role. And and really that just that image of Gene Wilder as Willy Wonka is is stuff of of Hollywood legend. It's just it's going to be in some of the greatest pictures of the, you know when you look at history of film, you're always going to see Gene Wilder as Willy Wonka. It's just there. Uh, and then of course his later films uh, with Richard Pryor. I mean him and Richard Pryor were a uh, were a comedy duo, uh, almost very modern. You know now these days you see it. You know, with with like Seth Rogen and James Franco always always making movies with each other. Well, back then it was it was Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor, two two of the best at their craft. Um, and you know, their movies to each person. You know, some may be really good, some not. But the fact that they were making them is just is incredible. So uh, this episode is all about the life and career of Gene Wilder. We we go through uh, how he got into entertainment. Uh, the different steps it took to become some of these characters. And then, of course, we just talk about our our personal love for some of his movies. And uh, so uh, big news, instead of September 28th being our 100th episode, me and Nate, Nate and I are actually going to take the rest of September off to plan. So episode 97, which will be our next episode, will be the first week of October. We'll do our Halloween month. And at the end, we will have a normal 100th episode, but then we will have a uh, 100th episode celebration, which we'll have a f- with a few other podcasts coming on and uh, and some games and prizes and whatnot. So um, enjoy the month of September. If you're, if you're going back to school, good luck. Best of luck to you. If not, best of luck in your work. And hopefully you're not at a job that celebrates back to school because you know how much of a pain in the ass that is. So... Uh, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com slash beanholes, you get a free 30-day trial of the Audible service. If you don't like the service, it's no problem. You can cancel any time and you get to keep a free audiobook of your choosing. You can choose any book on the site. As far as I know, uh, you know go ahead, try the new Harry Potter book that's out, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Uh, listen to it in audiobook form. So let's get on with the show with number episode 96, Gene Wilder. The bean holes, it's Eric and Nate. The bean holes, they're really pretty great. So shut up and listen to them talk. Eric and Nate. All right, uh, welcome to another episode of the Bean Holes. I'm Nate. I'm Eric, and we come today with a with a sad topic. As we like to do every once in a while, uh, anybody that's listening to this by now, 
either has heard or doesn't care, I think. <laughs> but uh, but Gene Wilder, another another beloved icon of the entertainment industry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who who affected really? I I'd say most people's childhoods in, in the English speaking world, at least. Uh, he he's passed away. Um. And and it's sad. And this this one, I think, probably it might might bother me a little more than uh, even than the Robin Williams one, uh, or um, or Leonard Nimoy. No, Leonard Nimoy is a big one for me. Yeah. That one bothered me a lot. But uh, I mean, in many in many ways, uh, Gene Wilder was a prominent figure throughout the. 70s and 80s in entertainment, whereas Robin Williams was kind of 80s, 90s mm-hmm. type mm-hmm. type deal. So, whereas I grew up with Robin Williams as this this beacon of comedy, you know, like him and Bill Murray or what I remember as a kid, just like, oh, these guys are top of the mountain, you know. Before them, Gene yeah. Wilder was, was one of those guys on top of the mountain. One of those guys. One of those guys. Um, of course, he's known for many... Uh, collaborations with Mel Brooks, uh, who who really is the the one that that really made him uh, a star, but uh, but he's he's most well known and and best loved. Uh, I don't think there's much argument about this for having played Willy Wonka in what is generally considered to be the best version, but the best adaptation of the book Charlie and the Check. Chocolate Factory. Yeah, he uh, um that that will be I mean not only is that image of him as Willy Wonka one of the the most well known in Hollywood itself but for him that's just that encompasses everything he's done. Yeah. You know, that role too pretty yeah. much is a fantastic it, role to go out like not to go out on but if if that's your most well known role, I mean it's a pretty good one. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh and not a tremendously successful movie when it first came out, but one of those movies that uh, it, it it's it's not just one of those movies that became a cult classic. It became a a a true classic, a general uh, a, a a huge part of of our popular culture. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, now I want to touch uh, right away. I want to touch on on the uh, the fact that he. Died from complications from Alzheimer's, um, and uh, and that's that's something that has touched uh, both of our lives personally as well. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a very tough disease, mm-hmm. and uh, can mentally be crippling on um, not only the the person going through it, but just family members. Uh, some people. Yeah. Some people kind of skirt by where it's it's not a problem, and, and others for, well, yeah for a long time yeah and eventually eventually it'll get you no matter what I mean you it, and you have to watch somebody you care about slip away piece by piece um I I, I mean when you're right there with them it literally is piece by every month there's just something else that's gone yeah so and, and, and eventually if nothing else the brain if if nothing else gets you the brain deteriorate deteriorates to the point that you pretty much forget to breathe like that that's um that's often when people die from, i don't know specifically that it was 
uh, <laughs> that that particular issue with him. Uh, but uh, but quite frequently when when it's said that it's complications from Alzheimer's disease, it's it's that your actual involuntary functions of the basic operations of your body actually stop working because your brain's broken down to that and, point. And really what a, um, you know, c- clearly I, I had no idea that he was actually in Connecticut. I mean, he was within driving distance for us, yeah. but, um, you know, I, um, but it's nice that they kept that away. Yeah. Well, they, they, out of the limelight, you know, for his privacy. But then also, you think about it, if this has been going on for three years and they kept this as like a big news story, not like front page, but just as like a thing, like, here's how he's doing, here's how he's doing. For three years, that would have been news where he had this disease. And then when he passed, it would have been more, you know, like, yeah. It's uh, his, his nephew who, who he considered like a son. Um, his his nephew Jordan Walker Perlman, who's also a, um, I believe a director uh, of of Hollywood films, um, said that the the reason for uh, keeping his condition private was so that when when young children would smile or call call out, you know, when they would see him and say Willy Wonka, um, they would not then hear adults that they were with immediately start talking about how sad it was that he was, you know, that, that he had this illness or, or anything so that, so that the kids could just be happy that they saw Willy Wonka and not, <laughs> not so that they would immediately be confronted with, with, uh, something horrible. Um, right. Right. Or, Which is it just, it's smart, yeah. you know? Um, so, um, <clears throat> uh, Side note: I've I've seen his signature several times, and I gotta say, just to go with our our signature being holes humor for a minute, I don't know whether he did it on purpose, but the G and the E in his first name looked like a dick when he wrote his signature. <laughs> I, I um, on some pages on Wikipedia, they'll actually put a picture of the signature, like under yep. their information, and the one I'm looking at looks like Seal Wilder. <laughs> he didn't connect the G, but uh. Um, so, uh, Gene Wilder was the name he chose for performing, uh, his, his given name when he was born was Jerome Silberman. Uh, he was born in 1933. Uh, and he chose, he chose the last name Wilder, uh, because he loved the play Our Town by Thornton Wilder and extension loved Thornton Wilder yeah, uh, yeah so he chose that as his last name he chose Gene he he used to say he chose it just because he liked it and it took him years to realize that was his mother's name wow <laughs> his, his really yeah his mother was named Gene and uh and she you know she was the one that exposed him to many uh uh you know men many uh of of his favorite you know, forms of entertainment. Uh, and, uh, and also, and she was diagnosed with rheumatic fever when he was eight years old. And the doctor said to him, try and make her laugh. Uh, and that was something that, that kind of triggered a, uh, you know, in, an instinct to, to perform. Uh, so he always, he felt that he unconsciously chose the name Gene in tribute to his mother. Um, 
but uh, but he believed at the time that he chose the name Gene Wilder that it was just a name he picked out of thin air. <laughs> I think it's funny because if I were to suddenly start calling myself Sue, <laughs> a boy named Sue, <laughs> like oh, it's a reference to the Johnny Cash song. Come on, <laughs> um, it's a great name though, and I, I don't think people realize the amount of people in Hollywood who have stage names. Yeah, still. Yeah, I and mean, it, I think most famously Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> yeah, well, which is which is funny because the. The tradition of of having a stage name is is due in large part to um, to uh, to wanting to to not be known as a Jewish person, and, and or I shouldn't say that that's that's not quite what what uh, that's not quite the right phrasing. What I mean uh, is. Uh, there was rampant anti-Semitism, and it was widely accepted all the way up until and even past World War II. Um, there, there was rampant anti-Semitism uh, in much of Europe and and throughout America, and to uh, to make it as a performer, it was very common to anglicize a name. This also happened uh, quite frequently with. Um, with uh people uh with with latino people um you know everybody in order to be able to make more money and and appeal to white audiences would would kind of whiten up their image a little bit with yeah with a stage or, or name. you know even using it to your advantage uh yeah. kind of with wrestlers who try to break out into acting yep. a lot of them keep like Hulk Hogan his real name is Terry Balea but he has never gone by that name whatsoever in life. Right. He is just Hulk Hogan. That's it. Like that's his name. That's his money. Yeah. So once you make, start making money with a certain name, you usually will stick with that. Yeah. But what's, what always has been funny to me is that Whoopi Goldberg is (laughs) Karen Johnson chose a name that what that specifically sounded Jewish, but that's because she was in stand up comedy. And one of the, one of the few places that, uh, the, in, in performance that, uh, there were some uh, some people making making strong headway with their own last names. Although yep. they often used yep. they often used uh, you know fake uh, first names that sounded funnier. Uh, and that's she specifically chose a name that sounded like oh maybe this is like an old Jewish guy. He'll be funny. I'll put him up in my open mic night. And then all of a sudden, this young black woman comes up and and kills it so it's funny to me that it's a tradition of of came mostly from not wanting people to know you're jewish and she's like i I better do this up a little bit um i can say that (laughs) being of jewish descent myself uh it's fine for you to say that yeah so even just um you know gene wilder that's a great that's a great name to have yeah um so so um he at at age eleven, Gene saw his. Uh, I guess at the time he was still Jerome. Saw his sister um, performing on stage. She was studying acting, um, and and he went up to her teacher and asked if if uh, if he could become his student. And the teacher said, "If you're still interested when you turn thirteen, then then yeah." And the day after he turned thirteen, he called the teacher, got accepted, and he studied for two years um and eventually his mother Jean Silberman uh decided that her his potential would be more fully realized if 
if he wasn't in the middle of Wisconsin. Uh, so she sent him to Black Fox Military Institute in Hollywood, um, where sadly, because he was the only Jewish boy, according to his, his own uh, memoirs, he was bullied and, and sexually assaulted uh, at the school. Um, I don't actually know the details. Um, there's varying degrees of sexual assault. I hope, as I do for anybody who's sexually assaulted, that it's not particularly bad, uh, <laughs> although it always will be. Um, I, that place, I think, shut down in the 60s. Like a way, That place yeah. wasn't open up very much longer after he was there. Yeah. So um, so he, he came home and got involved with local theater. Um, and so at 15, he, he performed in, uh, in front of a paying audience for the first time as Romeo's manservant, Balthazar in, of course, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Um, and, and he, he went on to perform in, in quite a few other local, uh, theater plays and graduated from Washington high school in Milwaukee in 1951. Um, yeah, he uh, he started as a stage stage actor before moving over to to film and television. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he actually. Well, before we move on to just his acting career, I just want to. We, we were talking about him um, having changed his name to uh, uh, like everybody else. I was just talking about. Yeah, uh, it it was to uh, you know he changed his name in, to be more anglicized and and get roles more easily in movies or, um, and, and on stage. And, um, uh, so I do just want to say his, his father was a Russian Jewish immigrant and his mother was the daughter of Russian Jewish parents. Um, so I guess his mother was a second generation Russian Jewish immigrant. Uh, and that's, uh, and, and, but Gene himself, in in one of his books said that his only religion is the golden rule um he's you know he loves he loves the culture he came from but he he said i don't believe in god or anything to do with the jewish religion um but you know the golden rule of course do unto others as you would have done unto you treat people yeah, you know, with yeah. the respect to you, I, I've always, as as non-religious as I've been, I've always thought that the Ten Commandments have been pretty good guidelines or rules that you should mm -hmm. follow. I mean, they're pretty common. So I, I, I see what he's saying, and I, I, I feel with that, you know. Yeah. Um. And yeah, I've myself. Uh, I, I golden rule is one of the best ones to live by. If you got yeah. one rule, that's the one. <laughs> um. So as you were saying. Uh, he, he, his early career was, was on stage. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, his first professional acting job was in Cambridge, Mass, Massachusetts, uh, where he was the second officer in a produ production of Twelfth Night by Herbert Berghoff. Yep. Um, and also he was the fencing choreographer. Yeah, I know he was he was big in the fencing. Yeah, I uh, think I did not know that myself. No, yeah, he. Um, as far as I know, when he was in the the Bristol Theater School in Bristol, England, he actually uh, after graduating from Iowa, I think he went to England 
Mm-hmm. And I, I think he was the first freshman to win an all-school fencing championship wow. at the time. Um, so I know that I I know that from an interview from from long ago where he talked about fencing a little bit. And he, as far as I know, had never like went full with it, but it was always just like a side thing for him. Yep. So that's that's pretty uh pretty interesting. Um. So. Uh, yeah, he, he, he began to be noticed in, uh, you know, a, as, uh, after three years of study, uh, with Herbert Berghoff and Uta Hagen, um, cause he, he know, uh, he was friends with Charles Grodin who told him about Lee Strasberg's method acting, um, often just say if you hear nowadays someone's a method actor usually it's just like it just makes you groan because it's somebody who actually isn't really following the method they're just following the one detail that they know about it which is basically like oh i'm gonna totally just become this character and live like them and yeah not break character at all and that's not really i the only thing that there is about it but <laughs> no and i i was uh that, that's got to be tough because i was just i was listening to a podcast the other day where they were talking about method acting yep and they were like how do you talk to somebody um like daniel day lewis if he's lincoln and he's lincoln off the camera like if you have to direct him like okay mr lincoln can you look into the magic box over yeah. here like, <laughs> <laughs> uh so but i've see he's he's someone that is um he he really is trained as a proper method actor and he's not like Jared Leto or is like, I'm just going to make up a bunch of crazy shit and pull pranks on people and then just say I it's because I'm being the Joker. I think the worst of the worst is still a superhero <laughs> would be uh, Wesley Snipes' Blade. Oh, God. Just like call me Blade and doesn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I've heard that Daniel Day-Lewis in, in actuality, he does... He does break character between takes, and and he he might still do the voice, but he's he's not like nah, I'm Abraham Lincoln. And <laughs> that's your best like, Abraham Lincoln. Man, four score and seven years well, ago. That's actually a lot closer to how he sounds than what what a lot of people think. Uh, he did not have a big booming voice. He's a whiny little bitch, much like uh, <laughs> much like George H. W. Bush. That's a pretty close voice, I think. Fair enough. From fair descriptions enough. Descriptions I've heard. But anyway, <laughs> but um, yeah. So so Charles Grodin got him to leave uh, the the studio that he was studying at, begin studying method acting method acting with Lee Strasberg, um, and and soon he was accepted into the actor's studio, the the very same that we all know from from. Basic James cable Lipton. television, James Lipton, and all that. Yes. Um, now that was the at the that was around the time that he started to think Jerry Silberman as Macbeth wasn't something that he was ever going to hear in his life, uh, and so he wanted to come up with a better name. And eventually, he he's admitted many times that he he realized that Gene Wilder as Macbeth wasn't any more likely to happen. Uh, Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> but uh, um, so that's when he, you know, he he came up with Gene Wilder, uh, and uh, and he started to get noticed in the off Broadway scene. Um, 
again, to, to clarify for our less theatrical audience members, off-Broadway basically means like like you're on a, your theater is on a street that actually directly connects to Broadway. It doesn't just mean, oh, it's almost Broadway because it's really good. It actually means it's almost Broadway geographically. Uh, yeah, and they'll, so they'll use, right that, they'll use that term for, for Broadway-produced shows that are, you know, touring. They'll be like, the off-Broadway production of The nope, Lion King. they won't. I've heard it in Hartford. When we went to see The Lion King, they were like, this is the off-Broadway production. Yeah, I think you're either you're wrong or you I'm did not hear it from someone directly associated with the play. <laughs> Might have been the pamphlet. I'll pull that out. Um, but yeah, I know, I know what you're saying. So anyway, uh, so he was in a stage performance of Roots, Sir Arnold Wesker's Roots, um, added in Graham Greene's The Complacent Lover, uh, and that is uh, Mel Brooks saw him in The Complacent Lover. Um, and he also won the Clarence Derwent Award for Best Performance by an Actor in a Non-Featured Role. That's pretty interesting. Um, which is basically a supporting actor. Um, and we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, so and that leads us kind of right into uh, yeah, where he met Mel Brooks, yep. who was dating somebody who was... He was dating Anne Bancroft. Yeah, who was... He was in a production of uh, Mother Courage and Her Children. Yes. And she was dating Mel Brooks, so they got introduced, Gene Wilder yep. and Mel Brooks. Um, and Brooks, after knowing each other for a few months, Brooks mentioned that he was working on a, a little screenplay called Springtime for Hitler. <laughs> um, and he thought Wilder would be great for the role of Leo Bloom. Uh, of course, this morphed into... The producers, um, and now, mind you, what we know, Mel Brooks now, and he walks up to you and says something like, "Hey, I'm making this movie." You go, <laughs> "Awesome!" Yeah. At that time, he wasn't he, known yeah. for anything. He was just—he was a guy. It was just Mel Brooks. That was yeah. it. Well, I mean, he was, was a little bit connected, but he wasn't quite. He the did get, I think he name. did. He co-created Get Smart, which yeah. was you know yeah. out at the time. Um, um, so, but. But the producers is what really made... I mean, Mel Brooks was a big enough name for the producers that his name went above the 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 title. He got top billing over his own yep. show. So Springtime. I, but I like but, how he approached it as springtime for Hitler. Yeah. Which is, and again, you know, in the show, the producers, the play that they're putting on is called Springtime for Hitler. Um, but because... Hollywood was not trying to make a flop as they are in the in the movie of the producers. Right. They said, hey, maybe we don't put Hitler in the title of the movie and uh, maybe we'll actually sell some tickets to this thing. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, he ended up uh, in the part of Leo Bloom. Yep. Which is the uh, the, the co co-starring role. And... Uh, Really, like in my head, I will always think of Max Bialystok and Leo Bloom as, uh, as, uh, what's his face? Are you thinking Nathan Lane and Nathan Matthew Lane Broderick? and Matthew Broderick? I had their faces, I just couldn't. <laughs> I to that like that. Those are the characters for me. Yeah. But if there's anybody else in the world to play Leo Bloom, Gene Wilder did such a fantastic yeah. job in that movie. Um, I happen to have seen the producers. Long before anyone was making a serious effort to bring it to Broadway, 
So, uh, and actually, I, I remember when I first saw it, I thought I would love to to actually turn this into a Broadway show. Yeah, it, fit, it looks, it fits so well. Yeah. And um, it, it was kind of a black comedy. It really wasn't. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, when you watch it, it's not anything that this is supposed to make you laugh, you know, your, your pants off. But the the humor is there in very dark ways. Yeah. And it's a. Uh, um, so even though uh, Mel Brooks won an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay and Wilder was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, uh, but it did not do well at the box office and critics uh, did not like it with uh, New York Times film reviews saying it was black college humor. Um, yeah. again, and, and, black humor not not being African-American. And, and I mean, that, that show itself really didn't uh, hit traction until it was a Broadway play. And now it's one of the longest running. Yeah. I mean, it, it became a cult classic. Yeah, is, oh, but, yeah, the film is a cult classic. Absolutely. Um, so then uh, in, you know, the next major, obviously there was a big collaboration uh, between he and Mel Brooks many times. Uh, this this was the first, but... Um, Pretty much after the producers, the, the big role was... Uh, in 1971. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, and and most of his stuff with Mel Brooks came after after right, right. Willy Wonka. The stuff that come to mind. Yeah. You know. So it was in 1971 that he auditioned to play Willy Wonka. Um, this time with Mel Stewart rather than Mel Brooks. Um, he just likes those Mel's. Man. <laughs> uh, Mel Stewart's film adaptation of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, of course being named Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. Uh, so Wilder recited a few lines, and then he was getting ready to leave, uh, you know, figuring, I did my audition, I'm going to get ready to leave. Um, but Mel Stewart ran after him and offered him the role immediately. Yeah, um, I think Mel Stewart had a, was a big fan of Gene Wilder. Yeah. Uh, and I... I really would be interested to know what, like, what was it, like, what did he see Mel Stewart before that really made him look, I'm sh I don't know if there's anything that he's ever said about it, but I would just like to know, like, what, what role or part did he ever see Gene Wilder where he just thought this is the guy to play Willy Wonka, yeah. but he saw something. I would think, um, have you ever seen the original version of the producers? Yes. Um, I would think that it was... Uh, when when he was as as Leo Bloom when he was just becoming manic you know and and panicked um, and I'm trying to think of something that rhymes with that but that's okay <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but just you know that that's an element to Willy Wonka but but like everything else he does it's all very calculated yeah um, but to, he at least saw that like that's that's something I want to see, you know, but so basically in the producers, I think you can see all the, the most of the dark parts of Willy Wonka or the, the, when he's feeling negative emotions, yep. when he, uh, you know, there's a lot of just sadness and, and being in a total panic and all, all that. And so I, I often find that those are the harder things for, uh, for people to portray on screen. So I, I, I would 
suspect that that was it. Um, Wilder was not, he, he was not like desperate to take this role. Um, and he didn't really know a lot about it. So, um, uh, but, but he did, he did know like a particular take he wanted to do with the character, which was, uh, that he, he he wanted nobody to ever trust that what he was saying or doing was really the truth. Right. Uh, and, and we're not going to read this verbatim, but the scene that when you first see Willy Wonka come out of the chocolate factory and the crowd is waiting for him and he's got the cane and he's stumped, he's just like slowly making his way. And there's that moment where he sticks his cane in the ground and then just like falls forward and does the little somersault and everyone cheers. He, that was his one condition to play that. Like, that was yeah. the one thing he wanted was that the first time you see him, he does something, you know, yes, it's lying, but it's it's something where the, for the rest of the movie, you never know yeah. what Willy Wonka's intentions are because yeah. of that first scene. And I think it also sets up that, like, you never you never really know whether to trust him or not, but it also sets up the idea that when he's lying when he does reveal the truth, it'll be something wonderful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And if you go and look at, at verbatim what Gene Wilder wanted, it, it, it it's exactly what happens in the movie. Yeah. Ex you know, so he, he basically was like, I'll take your role, but I'm, I've am i already written a scene that you need to add. <laughs> and I, I like it as much as I think um, uh, Roald Dahl didn't like the addition of stuff like that in the movie, yeah. but it, it works in... Especially for his portrayal of Willy Wonka. Yeah. Well, you know, we've talked before about the fact that the the version starring Johnny Depp is actually much more faithful to the books, but the books, I honestly think that, that Roald Dahl's books are, they, they appeal much, much more, uh, as you're becoming more mature, uh, they're not. I don't think they make good little kids movies. Uh, right. Not if right. you not if you adapt them faithfully. Um, and uh, and honestly, I think that this the the that Willy Wonka and the Char Chocolate Factory <laughs> it sounded like I said the Charlie Chocolate Factory <laughs> um, is is the best is is a better movie than the more faithful adaptation. Um, and again, I don't think there's much opposition to that. But uh, yeah, that that uh, that that's his role, Willy Wonka. And you have people who will, uh, you know, as much as some like Johnny Depp. I think even the people who prefer Johnny Depp's portrayal can't, you know, will just they won't disagree with the fact that that it, just any image of Gene Wilder as Willy Wonka is iconic in yeah. Hollywood culture. Um. And even the uh, cartoon, well, you know, when when uh, ne I think it's Nestle when they have they have a Wonka brand of candy. Yep. Uh, they actually use Gene Wilder's design as their cartoon of Willy Wonka. Yeah. You know, the purple coat, the brown hat, his frizzled hair. Yeah. You know, so. So yeah, that's that's been. I I don't know how much they've used that that image. Yeah. Since, but. Um. Uh. So. Shortly after that, Woody Allen offered a role in a segment of Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex, but we're afraid to ask. Yeah, um, the segment is called What is Sodomy? Yeah. 
And it's where Dr. Ross, played by Gene Wilder, falls in love with the partner of an Armenian patient, a sheep. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I've seen this. Uh, it's the, the uh, yeah, an Armenian guy comes to him. And his problem is that he's in love with a sheep. And the doctor goes ahead and falls in love with the sheep, too. After, of course, being horrified and disgusted <laughs> initially. It is a weird movie. Watch it if you ever get a chance. So shortly after that. Uh, he began work on a script called Young Frankenstein. Um, and and he and Mel Brooks uh, continued it together and, of course, became the... Um, <clears throat> became the classic movie, Young Frankenstein, um, one of the few black-and-white films uh, made uh, long after color film was invented. Uh, I think in the same year he also... With Mel Brooks also did uh, did Blazing Saddles, yep. Which was which isn't one people remember, but definitely Young Frankenstein out of the two is the yeah. I think that has really transcended generations, whereas Blazing Saddles is kind of falling behind a little bit. Yeah, I often wonder whether we should call it Young Frankenstein, given his own character's <laughs> constant corrections of everybody. If else. you've if, if you've never seen this Young Frankenstein or Young Frankenstein is this great comedic love letter to heart like old school horror movies yeah the whole movie is black and white and it it has if you go back and look at the way horror movies were done even when hammer was making horror movies they would do corny stuff like here's dracula here's son of dracula the bride of dracula curse of Dracula," like and it was a, a really different play where you know this is a different you know, young Frankenstein. This is a new type of. This is, I think it's his. He said his grandfather. Yeah. Yeah, his grandfather um, yeah. is the infamous Doctor Frankenstein. Right. So he goes, he goes by Frankenstein, Doctor Frederick Frankenstein. <laughs> um, the classic movie. Any everyone should watch it. Um, shortly after, after that, and and Blazing Saddles, uh, he. He made his directorial debut in another movie he had written called The Adventure of Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother. Um, and he plays the younger brother of Sherlock Holmes. Um, and then, very soon after that, his agent sent him a script for a film called Super Chief. Um, and Gene Wilder accepted, and he told the film's producers he thought the only person who could keep this script from becoming offensive to the audiences was Richard Pryor. Uh, this, this movie was then renamed Silver Streak and was the first of four or five movies that the two of them did did together. Yeah, they really... Uh, very weird but amazing partnership they had yeah. in movies. Even, even though Wilder has said they didn't really... They weren't friends outside of... The, like they didn't even get along as as Pryor's uh personal problems uh increased over the times that they collaborated they basically didn't even speak to each other um when they weren't in the process of filming a scene but they could they could just turn it on and and well, yeah you at least have to have uh some semblance of respect for somebody to be able to work with them for so long without really be having a friendship um because I think it was Silver Streak, Stir Crazy, See No Evil, Hear No Evil, which I think is their is their biggest one together. Um, uh, that people 
still talk about because I and then another you. I just think that one ended up on TV more because it was actually one of the least successful ones. And so it was easier and cheaper to get on to TV for for basic cable stations. I mean, it definitely still has a lot of a lot of negative reviews, but I think that's also their more even box office wise. It's their more successful one. Um, nope. Possibly stir crazy. <laughs> Uh, Stir Crazy is definitely huge. <laughs> uh, and that, that was a, that was the one that uh, Pryor was struggling with his cocaine addiction at the time. And he was showing up sometimes an hour late for filming and it was very difficult. But you, you wouldn't know the you wouldn't know the difficulties they had behind the scenes from watching the movie. That's for sure. Um So he continued starring in movies into the, the 90s. Uh, he was in a film called Funny About Love, uh, another one called... Another You. Another You. Which was the last prior Gene Wilder movie. Yep. And last last starring role for prior. Uh, for both, actually. In, well, in film. Yes, yes. Both Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder, their last film was Another You in 1991, and it did it tanked at the box office, and critically, I, I don't think did well either. Yeah, um, and Wilder did some, some TV stuff after that. Um, uh, he, he, there was actually an NBC sitcom called Something Wilder that only lasted for one season, um, obviously starring him. Uh, and then he was in a production of Alice in Wonderland, um, and some mystery movies for A and E. His last acting gig was on a uh, two two episodes of Will and Grace as yep. Mister Steen yep. Stein, yeah, which is a playback to Young Frankenstein. Yep. Um, and that really, I mean, he, and this is look, this is a a testament to him as a as an actor and a personality that he really has, like four or five big roles that people remember him for and that's it but he was just such a tremendous personality in those in those four and five movies yeah um you know it, it's not like now where you have actors they're like oh i'm on my 30th film and of course they'll be remembered but back then if you made an impact on one you were remembered for life yeah i mean there there's there's some people that that might be the case but it's largely to their detriment you know uh in 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 sixty years, we might be doing an episode about McLovin, but we're not gonna we're not even gonna remember his actual name. <laughs> I I guess, and this is that would be hilarious if I'm still around <laughs> doing a podcast in sixty years. Hey, maybe that's that's the money right there. <laughs> I guess that wasn't his. I mean, that was his last on-screen role. Mm-hmm. But according to IMDb, uh, he did, he played the voice of Elmer in the Yo Gabba Gabba movie too. <laughs> he probably literally phoned it in. Yeah, which is, which is usually the case for those. Um, now, uh, speaking to his personal life, uh, he was married, I believe, four times, um, uh, his his first wife, Mary Mercier, uh, 
they uh, they met while studying at the HB studio in New York, um, and they they married very quickly, and <laughs> spent a lot of time apart, and eventually divorced. Uh, uh, not five years after uh, they initially married, um, and. Uh, and he began dating Mary Joan Schutz, a friend of his sister. Um, and she had a daughter, Catherine, from a previous marriage who quickly started calling him dad. Uh, and he felt the right thing to do at that point would be to, to marry, uh, to marry Mary Schutz and, uh, and adopt Catherine. Um, and they, they stayed together for seven years. Um, and uh and and of course divorced uh now uh, um his third wife though uh was uh, is a legend in her own right um and and as far as the public's concerned this this is uh this is the wife uh <laughs> to to talk about uh uh Gene Wilder met uh Actress Gilda Radner, uh, while filming uh, Hanky Panky in 1981, um, uh, Radner was married to G. E. Smith, yeah, the, the guitarist for the Saturday Night Live band. Uh, but uh, but she and Wilder became very close friends, and when they were done filming, he missed her and called her and and. Basically, they they fell in love, and and she divorced Smith in in 1982. So they 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 knew each other for one year before she was like, "I'm leaving my husband for you." Um, oh, that's wonderful, right? Uh, so she moved in with with Wilder. Um, they got married in 1984 in France, um, and they they tried to have children, but Radner unfortunately uh, suffered several miscarriages and um and the doctors could not figure out what the problem was um and she became very tired and felt pain in her upper legs and and uh after many false diagnoses uh she was uh found to have ovarian cancer oh jeez um, and and this is of course uh this is of course what killed her you know anyone that that it that knows um, much about Gilda Radner uh, knows that she did die um, from from complications of of from ovarian cancer. Um, uh, but she she got a few good years because uh, they found they diagnosed her in '86, um, and for a year and a half she got chemotherapy and radiotherapy, and and the disease went into remission. Um, and that's when Wilder was able to take some time to film, see no evil, hear no evil. But in 1989, the cancer returned and metastasized, meaning that the, uh, the cancer cells began spreading into other parts of the body. Um, and she died on, uh, May 20th, 1989. Um, and Wilder has said many times that it, it never like until she died, he never thought that there that she would. He he always thought she'd pull through and and beat it. It never really occurred to him. So that was 
Oh, geez. As devastating to him uh, as it would be to anyone. And Wilder became very active promoting cancer awareness and treating treatment. Uh, he helped, he, he co-founded the, the Gilda Radner Ovarian Cancer Detection Center in L.A. and co-founded Gilda's Club, uh, which is a support group that raises awareness of cancer um, and has branches throughout the country now. Um, now, while preparing for his role as a deaf man in See No Evil, Hear No Evil, he met Karen Webb, uh, nay Boyer. Uh, that means her last name used to be Boyer. Yeah. Uh, he met Karen Webb uh, because she was a clinical supervisor for the New York League for the Hard of Hearing, and she coached him in lip reading for the movie. Um, and after Gilda's death, uh, they reconnected, Wilder and Webb reconnected, and uh, in September of 91, they married, uh, and and they lived. And they've been together ever since? Yeah, ever and, since. And, you know, that that's, uh, it's incredible um, to, to go that long in yeah. marriages. And a lot of his marriages really, I mean, you know, Gilda Radner had passed, and, and he stayed with, with Karen all this time, so. Yeah. Um, so after his, uh, after his retirement, uh, from acting, which wasn't an official retirement, he had always said, you know, I'm, I'm not looking for stuff, but if somebody sends me a script and it's really awesome, I'll do it. He, I'm sure he didn't say the word awesome, but, uh, <laughs> um, but he, uh, he never really got anything that, that really, uh, would after that role in Will and Grace, he never got anything that that struck his fancy. So, uh, so he and his wife uh, spent most of their time painting watercolors and and uh, helping with charity. Uh, and uh, but he did have a bit of a a a, a, a new career in writing books. Uh, um, of course, in '98, he collaborated with oncologist Stephen Piver. Um, on the book Gilda's Disease, uh, and um, and and he himself was hospitalized with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in '99, um, but by by 2005 that that was in complete remission uh, after he received chemotherapy and a stem cell transplant, um, and then he he began working on some other books uh, in in Mar on March 1st 2005 he released his personal memoir kiss me like a stranger my search for love and art um, which of course is where a lot of our information came from yep uh, uh, two years later in March 2007 he released his first novel my French whore uh, which is hey, you got to read that. It's, it's <laughs> seriously it's a it's like a humorous spy comedy yeah and it's set in World War one. And it's called My French Whore. You should just yeah. read it. Anything called My French Whore is and especially consumed. by Gene Wilder. Uh, and then his second novel came out just one year after that, The Woman Who Wouldn't. Uh, so he just sat at home and, and just was writing. And uh, he, he really stayed out of the limelight, but there were definitely moments where, um, you know, I know Turner Classic Movies did a special on him and had Alec Baldwin interview him in 2008. Uh, and that's where he said that he, he was basically retired at that point from acting for good. 
And his quote is, I don't like show business, uh, I realized. I like the show, but I don't like the business. Yeah. Which is, you hear a lot of the guys who stop doing movies, that's that's a lot of their problem. Yep. Is the business part of, of the show business. Yeah. Um, so I, I do, in 2013, Time Out New York uh, was able to, to interview him. So this is just three years ago. And they asked if if he would act again if something came came his way. Uh, in quotes, this is his response: "I'm tired of watching the bombing, shooting, killing, swearing in 3D." Which it's weird that 3D is is coupled in with all that bad <laughs> stuff. But I get 52 movies a year sent to me, and maybe there are three good ones. That's why I went into writing. It's not that I wouldn't act again. I'd say, give me the script. If there's something wonderful, I'll do it. But I don't get anything like that. Yeah. Um, so he never did. Um, yeah. So, which, uh, now I just, I want to finish up just, uh, relating. I'm a lot of people may not already know this, uh, cause James Corden, uh, brought it up already on his show last night. Uh, but James Corden, current host of the late show, the late, late show, yeah. um, uh, <coughs> excuse me. He, um, when when he first got the show, he the, on on the very first episode, what he wanted to do and what they did do was a thing where he, uh, where it was because nobody really knew who he was in America, uh, he wanted to do a thing like he was a golden ticket winner, not that he was somebody that really was like in line to be hosting a show. Uh, right, his announcement came out of like thin air. Yeah, really. So. Um, and so they did this bit where it was like he got the golden ticket and he, they wanted to have Gene Wilder come on as Willy Wonka and just play a part in it. And and uh, and James had met him. Uh, he came back. Wilder came backstage uh, when when uh, Corden had done a play uh, in in uh, in New York. And and he he talked to him and and uh, at, at that time and. He was, he wasn't like, oh, you were so wonderful in this play and big things are going to happen for you over here. He was just like, how's your, how's your family adjusting? And like, just very personal. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and Corden appreciated that. So then when he did have, did get this show, he, he just sent him an email and asked if, you know, he would be willing to participate. And, and, uh, Wilder's response was simply, Dearest James, I don't do or go where you were hoping, but I'll be looking for you with my love, Gene. Uh, and, of course, James Corden loved that because it was like, oh, if Willy Wonka actually wrote an email, that's probably how he would say it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, what a wonderful message to get. Yeah. Um, and uh, I feel like that's his final message to all of us. Yeah, yeah. So this is, uh, you know, when you hear, get, when you get this news, it's always, it's an instant sad, but just like with, with other characters with Leonard, you know, Leonard Nimoy and, and, um, not characters, but actors and Robin Williams who affected us and with Gene Wilder, it's an instant sadness, but then it's, it's that moment afterwards that you just start remembering everything the person has done for you and what that person means to you and take those experiences and the, that love that the, the 
actors give you and, and pass that on to somebody else, make somebody else just as happy as someone else did for you. So on that note, we, we, um, uh, just wish the best for Gene Wilder's, uh, remaining family. And, um, and this is it for this episode of the Beanholes. Keep on beaning. Harry Candy.